At its very core, drug science must remain independent. This means we don't accept sponsorships. It's with the support of the drug science community we're able to do this and make the podcast in the first place. If you're able to become a drug science community member and support the show, you too will be supporting the dissemination of evidence-based drug policies. Without you, none of this would be possible. For anybody interested, there's a link in the show notes. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the Drug Science Podcast with me, David Nutt. Here we're bringing together experts and activists for a rational, honest and informed conversation about drugs. A Fascinate Productions podcast for drug science. Welcome to another drug science podcast. Uh, I'm David Nutt and uh, today my guest is Professor Jerry Stinson. And Jerry is an old friend of mine. We started working together pushing 20 years ago on uh, the Government Foresight Project, Drug Science, Addiction and Drugs. I realised then that he was one of the uh, most knowledgeable people about drugs and drug harm reduction that I've ever met. And so today I'm going to chat with him about his fascinating career and the contrast between the success he had in persuading doctors and politicians around uh, harm reduction with HIV uh, and some of the more interesting challenges he's met more recently, trying to persuade people that harm reduction for tobacco is also an equally viable and uh, powerful alternative. So welcome, Jerry. Oh, hello, David. Great to be talking to you. And uh, well, why don't you just give the, uh, the audience a little bit of intro into your background and, you know, the origins of your interest in harm reduction? Yes, well, it, it, as you say, predates uh, my interest in tobacco because I first got interested in drug harm reduction back in the late 1980s, early 1990s, when we were faced with a potential epidemic of HIV infection, in, in particular amongst people who inject drugs. So I was called in fairly early by the Department of Health to evaluate the new needle exchange schemes because they needed to know would they attract people, would they work, would they help to drive down prevalence or prevent prevalence of HIV rising. So I suddenly launched into this massive evaluation project with quite political significance. Mm. Over the years since then, I, I, I suppose I started off as a quizzical external observer, but over the years I suppose I became a card-carrying harm reductionist because I saw the success of drugs harm reduction programs, a success of needle exchange, the success of providing methadone as a clean alternative to heroin and by extension preventing overdose and so on. And this is with a population you would think wouldn't be amenable to change. But I, I think I soon learned that many people want to make changes or are able to make changes if you provide them with the right information but more importantly, provide them with the tools for doing it. You know, this is long before the government behavioural insights unit and the nudge program. <laughs> we were doing it years ago. You know, yeah. you can help people. You can't make people do things. You can help yeah. them along in the right direction. And, uh, of course, the nudge unit has become you know, extremely fashionable and it's been privatised and, you know, it's still very close to the cabinet office. But how did politicians view your early excursions into um, opioid harm reduction? 
Well, initially, I think people were worried because this was a time of the Thatcher government and people thought that Thatcher's response to AIDS and to drugs would be, you know, restore family values and you shouldn't be doing these sorts of things. But there were some problems, hiccups, but within a few months, there was pretty good uh, acceptance. And I think a lot of that's down to Norman Fowler, who was the Secretary of State for Health at the time, and he quickly was educated in the need for harm reduction. And then we had kind of a decade or more of drugs harm reduction. And when Blair's government came in, it was more an emphasis on drugs and crime. But in effect, it was a continuation of harm mm. reduction because it was saying, OK, people are committing crimes because they're using drugs and getting money to obtain drugs. But if you give them methadone, that's going to drop. So that harm reduction message continues. So I, I think it was very well accepted and particularly amongst many uh, public health leaders who became very enamoured on drugs harm reduction and some of them became very enamoured on wider drug policy reform, you know, going beyond the sort of hard drugs that I was working on, but to other areas of drug policy. So broadly in the UK, it was an easy ride. It wasn't in many other parts of the world, but we did it well, we did it early, and it was a public health success. We have very low levels of HIV infection amongst people who inject drugs in the UK, only about 100 new cases a year. And still in many parts of the world, you've got thousands of new cases a year. So we did something that was pretty good. And of course, it was wider than that. It was it was safer sex as well as safer drug use. And in a way, safer drug use might have got in on the back of safer sex, the same sort of concept. So, yeah, we did well. And I think public health did well then, maybe not so much now with tobacco. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, it, it is said, and I quite often say this when I give lectures on the history of drug policy in Britain, that the only time Margaret Thatcher changed her mind was when confronted with the threat of the AIDS epidemic and the, the need to instigate needle exchange. It, she was emotionally opposed to it, being a conservative, yes. but she supposedly said, and maybe you were in the room at the time, that if the scientists said if we had to do it, then we should do it. Is there truth in that? I, I think there may be a bit. I think also that many politicians became aware that uh, AIDS was no respecter of boundaries and they could see infections occurring in their families. There's always that element of the personal experience, personal testimony, the personal knowledge is sometimes as important as the science. So, in fact, what you saw then, Britain actually kind of leading the world in terms of applying what we might call rationality to the problem of harms from particularly opiate drugs, bringing in policies that would prevent the spread of infection, initially HIV and more subsequently, of course, Hep C. And the rest of the world, particularly America, sort of despising us or criticising us and actually sometimes attacking us. And now we're seeing something rather similar. Britain, as I see it, leads the world in terms of tobacco harm reduction, at least in relation to vaping. Would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the UK would be the best place for anybody who wants to switch from smoking to vaping. And there have been objections and obstacles along the way, but we've been very fortunate in having uh, scientists who are swayed by the evidence, having uh, Public Health England experts who are following the evidence and sometimes not listening to the public health directors who have different views, public health practitioners. And we have the most benign environment for people to switch to safer nicotine products. We've now got around 3.6 million people who are vaping in the UK, 3.6 million adults who are vaping. That's about 6% of the adult population. During the period when e-cigarettes have become 
widely, more widely available from sort of 2010, 2011 onwards, smoking has begun to plummet. We've had a 25% drop in the prevalence of smoking since 2011, dropping from 20% now down to about 15% or 14% smoking. So you've got this crossover if you can envisage the graph where vaping is going up and smoking is coming down. No, that's an association. But it's clear that vaping is playing a key role in people switching away from smoking. So it's been kind of fascinating to watch it and also to wonder why it has happened, because it hasn't been governments or public health experts telling people what to do. I mean, governments sometimes like to tell people what to do, but public health experts like to tell people what to do. But the message it hasn't come from there. It's been driven by a very different dynamic, which has been good products coming from mainly initially small companies, more latterly tobacco companies got interested in, but we can return to that. So it's good product and consumer choice. So for me as a kind of a public health expert, it's quite extraordinary to watch this process because it's being driven by people and products rather than by public health experts. I mean, most of, most of my life I've been persuading big grant givers, big foundations to give big money to do public health products, pro- projects. We've got to prevent, you know, whatever AIDS in Russia, we need loads of money to do it. Top-down driven. This hasn't cost the taxpayer anything. It hasn't come from government. It's come from people themselves. And that's fascinating that here is kind of a people finding a solution to a problem they had. And it's not being driven by the experts. In fact, many of the vapors are very quizzical about the experts because, as you know, there's an awful lot of supposition about how bad vaping can be for you and all the rest of it. And it, it actually leads to a distrust of expertise. But this is a consumer-driven public health revolution. I call it small public <laughs> health without capital P, public without capital H, health. So there's two or three very interesting elements or themes in what you've just said. But before I get into those, tell me why you, how, I suppose you'd sorted out the AIDS epidemic and then you wanted another challenge. Is that why you, <laughs> you moved into tobacco? Uh, yes, in a way. But I, 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 I don't know, around 2010, I left academic work, as, as you know, sort of early 2000s and went into public health advocacy, promoting drugs harm reduction to yes, international yes. agencies. Got a little bit bored with that because I thought job done or as much as I could do. And I'd hired a lot of people into that arena who came from human rights and they knew much more than me and I thought they could all do it much better than me. It was time to move on. So around 2010, when I stopped doing that work, I'd heard about e-cigarettes and I thought, well, this is really interesting because up until now, there hasn't really been the harm reduction solution for smoking. The idea had been floated many years before, mm-hmm. but the only products which were available were uh, nicotine replacement therapy products, which, as I'll perhaps elaborate later, are a little bit boring, yeah. uh, and Swedish snus uh, oral tobaccos, which are not available in, in most of Europe. So with the arrival of e-cigarettes, I just you know, thought this is going to be the vehicle because here you have a safer product, a safer version of the drug. And getting the drug safer is very important, as you know, whether it's with an illicit drug or even with alcohol. I mean, we have lots of problems with people drinking alcohol, but at least you know the stuff you drink is pretty safe. You know it's got alcohol in it and you can drink too much of it, but you're not going to die from drinking the bottle of vodka from the corner shop unless it's a fake one. (laughs) But 
cleaning up the product seemed to me to be an uh, excellent idea. And at about that time, I started to meet people who were vaping. Most of these were uh, very enthusiastic vapors, uh, you know, who were very interested in the different devices and so on. So I started talking to them, understanding what they were doing and why they were doing it. And so that uh, restored your faith in the rationality of... Uh... Uh, of human uh, drug taking, that people want to get pleasure from drugs, but they don't want to be harmed. Exactly. And I think that we have been uh, somewhat diverted in thinking about what to do about smoking because we've talked about it as highly addictive. Hmm. And you have that language of addiction and you see those reports that say, you know, Hmm. uh, Nicotine or smoking is as addictive as heroin. Oh, yeah. And I bought that for years and years. You know, you, you one cigarette and you're kind of hooked for life. Yeah. I've changed my view on that because I don't think addiction is a very helpful concept when it comes to smoking. It becomes less important. And issues like pleasure are important. In fact, smoking doesn't really fit the diagnostic criteria for dependence or addiction. You know, you're not spoiling your life by seeking the drug. You're not getting intoxicated. You're not using a higher dose. Uh, And in fact, if you think of addiction as kind of dependence or compulsion plus harms to self or others, if there are no harms to self or others, the interesting question, what you're left with, you're left with a liking for a a drug which gives some people pleasure. And nicotine is quite a fascinating drug in that respect. Yes, I mean, nicotine, I always teach, it's unique as far as I know. It's the only drug that both uh, relaxes you but also improves your cognitive function at the same time and that of course is one of the reasons people are so uh, so much so much enjoyed smoking but i mean of course yes. it is it is also harmful i mean and the, the people who've moved from tobacco to to vaping are pretty clear that they want to reduce their risks of uh, well particularly of lung cancer and of obstructive airways disease etc so uh, smoking is not yes. yeah, smoking yeah. is still very harmful even if it's addictive it's not addictive it's still very harmful yes uh, i think there are a couple of points there one is uh, as mike russell uk psychiatrist said many years ago people um smoke from the nicotine but die from the tar but as soon as yeah. you strip the nicotine away from the harmful constituents then uh, you, you're avoiding the, the serious health issues so the problem is is combustion yes but what you said about nicotine just a bit before then i find it fascinating because it's you know, when it's inhaled, it's fast-acting, but it's fairly short-acting. Yes. Uh, it's not intoxicant. It's a mild stimulant drug, but it seems to be more than that. It's an interesting mood moderator. It can aid concentration. It can help people relax. It can give a structure to the day, a minor reward, you know, a particular yep. moment yep. in the day. So as you and I well know, you need to avoid sort of pharmacological determinism here. And, you know, there's a social, there's a psycho, psychological aspect to it as well. So I, I talk about social psychopharmacology sometimes because it's the way people use things, which is important to understand it. Yeah, drug effects. And in that absolutely. respect, nicotine is a very interesting drug. And to emphasize, it's not an intoxicant. So, yeah. um, you know, you strip away the smoke and you're left with the nicotine yeah, and that's that's sorry. I mean, when we did our uh, twenty drug harm analysis uh, paper, that was ten years ago yes. now. I mean, I mean, it's certainly one of the big, the, the perhaps the biggest separation of alcohol and nicotine, the sort of two popular legal drugs, was was the fact that you know people don't crash their cars after smoking a cigarette, they don't beat up their wives. You know, yes, it's it's much less damaging to other people than. Uh, 
than Argonne. Yes, and of course your, your paper was uh, way ahead of its time. I mean, it was at a time when there was not a lot of information about many of these products because e-cigarettes mm. were still fairly new, heated tobacco products still under development. And so getting the expert opinion on the relative safety was very important. And your estimate in that paper of being 95% less harmful than smoking has been vindicated by the subsequent tox studies and cell studies and short-term health studies. And it is the same figure that's now used by Public Health England for their estimate of the relative risk of vaping versus smoking. They've arrived at that figure by a different route, but yes. it's a very good way of communicating relative risk across a number of variables, a number of dimensions. And one of the things I, I um, love from that your, your celebratory talk was the this, the point you made, which is that some of the resistance to to vaping seems to come from uh, people who should know better, the health experts. <laughs> and and I, th- I think you were arguing that it's because they didn't discover it, <laughs> they find it hard to support. W- would that be a, a reasonable summary of your position? I think, yes, I, without being too... Churlish. I think that this didn't come from medicine. It didn't come mm. from public health. It came from little companies in China. In a way, there was a big question about what the role of medicine or public health might be here, and they weren't in control of it because you know people in experts like to be in control. So I think that's part of the explanation. As in a way. All they could do was to raise concerns and uh, the maybes and the fear yeah. and the uncertainty. In fact, I've got a friend who developed a little indicator called the, the fear and uncertainty and doubt quotient, which was an analysis of papers on vaping, which used words like may or could be or yeah. possibly, you know, it's like, yeah. <laughs> rather than the strength yeah. of evidence. So yeah. there's a there's an uncertain role there. Secondly, people had a adopted quite rightly a strong tobacco control messaging over a couple of decades. But that was predominantly what I call sticks. You know, it was cracking mm. down on smokers, cracking down on industry, mm. wanting an end to smoking and seeing an end to the industry. So the mentality was bans. And I think mm. it made it very difficult for people to sort of step a little sideways and look at the carrots rather than the sticks. So it didn't fit with the tobacco control mentality. And third, there was a great fear that this might be, still is a fear that this might be a tobacco industry plot to keep people addicted or to mm. get new recruits to, uh, to, to, to nicotine uh, addiction. I mean, wrong, in fact, because the tobacco industry is a late comer to this mm. area. But I think there was a fear that this was the tobacco industry trying to make sure that it still had... Uh, customers and and i think that's a a wrong perception Uh, for me in fact it holds the potential that the tobacco industry might be transformed yes uh, just in the way that the car industry moves to electric and the bp has to move to green energy so the disruption is there but those i think those are the elements why they why people in public health were very challenged by this and all the more odd, it seemed to me, because as I said earlier in this discussion, that many of these people were very pro-drugs harm reduction, pro-drug policy reform. This is as though they were in a different hat when it comes to tobacco. And they feel it very strongly because tobacco control is not a, only a science, but it's a social movement. So people really do feel 
passionate about an end to smoking. But for my mind, they've chosen two elements, demand reduction and supply reduction at the expense of a third one, which is harm reduction. Yeah, that's very, very well put. Um, I often be fascinated why there's so much antipathy to smoking and almost none to drinking. It's, I can, as you know, as we talked earlier, I, I worked in AIDS. Yes. Key element there was destigmatization. Yeah. You don't stigmatize populations. You need to bring them in. You need to engage mm. with them. When I started looking at smoking, I started reading articles from public health experts who would argue for using stigma to help people. (laughs) You stigmatize (laughs) smokers for their own benefit because you stigmatize them and you get their friends to stigmatize them and then they're going to stop. Only, I mean, it happens a little bit now with obesity, I think, with sort of fat Mm. shaming. But I couldn't understand this, how... Public health experts, WHO and others, would talk about the benefits of stigma. So, yeah, it is stigmatized. And of course, that, that has a follow on effect because many vapors, in the early days at least, said, you know, I used to smoke and I was stigmatized. Now I'm vaping, I'm doing the right thing and I'm still stigmatized. Yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah you're damned if you do and you're damned yes. if you don't. So. Yes. Yeah. I, I want to explore a little bit more the um, rather clear divide between what's going on in the UK and what's going on in America. Where in the UK, when I, I talk to my American friends and say, well, Public Health England is supportive of vaping and NHS Wales is prescribing vaping to people with tobacco-induced, you know, or cigarette-induced chronic lung disease to stop them having so many episodes of bronchitis, etc. But in America, it, there seems to be no rationality in this field at all. Do you want to comment on why there's such a huge difference between two countries with essentially the kind of same problems? It does look odd, but bear in mind the US was always far behind other countries with drugs harm reduction and still is to some extent. Uh, It adopted methadone early, but that was in a different era. That was a concern about Vietnam War veterans returning to the States addicted to heroin and finding a solution to their heroin problems because many in the US military were addicted to heroin in Vietnam. So methadone came in early. But uh, needle exchange, many of these things have not been popular in the US. So there's an antipathy to harm reduction generally. There is a what seems from a European perspective, a very strong preoccupation with kids, <laughs> the health of US kids. And you know, there are organizations like Mums Against Vapes. You know, there's been oh, a really? whole moral oh yeah, there's been a whole moral panic about youngsters vaping. All misplaced. And in fact, US youngsters are smoking less than ever before with the increase in vaping. So there's a anyhow. Second, the regulatory framework in the US has become a mess. It, the FDA has made a mess of regulating products, whereas in the in UK and Europe, we moved swiftly to regulate. And thirdly, I think there's a strong and well-funded anti-tobacco social movement and organisation. A lot of that money coming from Bloomberg and some from Gates. So Bloomberg, who's mm. personally very much against smoking, has poured a huge amount of money into the US and globally in helping to develop anti-smoking campaigns and organizations. But Bloomberg is also funding organizations which are very much anti-vaping. I mean, Bloomberg put $180 million into a campaign to ban flavors in the US. 
a huge amount of money. And you see that coming through in the way in which many of the tobacco control organizations are pressuring the US government. So it's a very different climate. And it just seems to me very odd to be sitting here in the UK. We talk about things in quite a pragmatic way. You know, we have hospitals which have vape shops in them. Three, three NHS hospitals have vape All shops. Right. It's kind of ordinary stuff. We kind of get on with it. And yet the U.S. is a very different, very different approach to this and a damaging approach because of the U.S. influence internationally. So a lot of the rhetoric from the U.S. flows through into other countries. Well, through the the U.N. and the WHO. Yes, partly through WHO. The US is not particularly enamoured of UN organisations, but mainly through funding of grassroots organisations in other countries. And WHO is another matter because WHO is antipathetic to e-cigarettes and to safe nicotine products. Again, it was a late comer to drugs harm reduction, but you tend to get these units within WHO who dominate the discussion, and that's very much been an anti-smoker, anti-industry. Thinking about uh, the comment you made about the complete misrepresentation of youth vaping in America, where you've seen cigarette smoking almost disappear as people have taken up vaping, it seems to me what the Americans have done is they've just redefined vaping as smoking so that they can still kind of pursue their clamour and their, and their almost their hysteria, even though the evidence is showing that tobacco smoking in under-21-year-olds you know, under is almost disappearing because people are vaping instead. Yes. It's almost as though vapor madness has replaced reefer madness. You know, remember those oh, films about reef? Yes. To me, you know, the, those huge campaigns against marijuana, you know, the reefer madness idea, it's almost as though vaping has replaced that in public discourse. Because at a time now in the US where laws against cannabis and marijuana have been relaxed, and yet people are coming down tough on vaping. So that's one thing to think about how, you know, you get these passions for different um, problems, uh, different threats to American society. Yeah, I think that's very interesting, Jerry. actually. It's, it, it has to be some madness. They've got to, there's got to be some behaviour in young people that they can get up Well, and if you look back to, um, to rock and roll, hula hoops, yeah. the internet, <laughs> computers, they're all going to wreck US teens' lives. So I'm sorry to be a little bit cynical there, but I mean, there does seem to be an element element of that. Um, but it's okay to send them off to Afghanistan at 18. But... Yes, yeah, but by the time they get to 18, yes, exactly. <laughs> um, it's moved from being anti-smoking now to being anti, sorry, anti, doing anti-nicotine. So it's a mm. war on nicotine because these kids will become addicted to nicotine or have a lifetime of enslavement to nicotine. So that's the new discourse. So nicotine is the problem, not yes. smoking as it was. So nicotine, we're worried about kids using nicotine. Yeah, I want to explore that with you a bit now. Then let's let uh, I've seen that happening. You know, you're seeing papers coming out of scientists from top universities saying nicotine is more addictive than crack and at least in rats anyway, supposedly. And you think, it's funny that, isn't it? It isn't sort of my impression in humans that um, it, it, clearly there's uh, hysteria is being developed around nicotine. And, and, and that's happening in the face of quite a lot of data suggesting that nicotine isn't particularly problematic. And I'm particularly thinking of the Swedish data, the SNUS data, which has been sitting there and gradually accumulating more and more yes. evidence over 20, 30 years which no one seems to be taking any notice of at all. Well, the Swedish data on the use of SNUS is very compelling. 
Uh, snus is a little, well, it's ground up tobacco, but it's mostly sold in a little pouch. And over the last 20 years, snus has driven out smoking in Sweden. Also in, in Norway. In Norway, only 1% of young women now smoke. Smoking has virtually disappeared amongst young wow. women in Norway. But about 14% of them use snus. So there's been this crossover, decline in smoking, rise in the use of snus. In Sweden, Sweden has the lowest prevalence of smoking in Europe, has the lowest rate of tobacco-related disease in Europe due to snus. And uh, there were lots of scares about snus and possible links with different kinds of cancers, but the epidemiological work going back over 30, 40 years really gives snus, I wouldn't say a clean bill of health, but nearly everything you've tried to look at in terms of a problem seems to disappear when you look at the studies overall. So Sweden is a proof of concept that where there is a safer tobacco product and people want to use it and use it, it'll drive out smoking. Unfortunately, snus is banned in the in the rest of Europe, mainly due to the UK instituting that in the within Europe under Edwina Curry. So I want to explore that because most people won't know what you did, how you spearheaded the attempt to change that under the Human Rights Act. I want you to tell people about how you tried to use the Human Rights Act to get Europe to change its view on snus. Your listeners need to understand that in Europe, snus is, is not legal to sell snus. It, it is in Sweden, which has an exemption. And all of Europe is covered by the same legislation. Whether the UK will divert from that in future years is difficult to know. So there's a ban on the sale of snus, although the evidence is compelling that it's a much safer product than um, cigarettes. There was a case brought against the ban by one of the manufacturers, a company called Swedish Match, who have almost the monopoly on making snus in Sweden. And I was working with a consumer group called the New Nicotine Alliance, which was a group promoting alternatives to smoking. And they decided to join the case. And we discovered that under UK court procedure, you could ask to join a case as a third party intervener in the public interest. So we said we had an argument to put into this mix. Swedish match had a commercial argument, but we had a, an argument about people who might use or do use snus. The argument we developed was looking at the evidence for the use of snus in Sweden, where it seemed to protect key people against smoking. We argued that people should have a right to a safer product. Smokers shouldn't be denied access to a safer product. So we argued under the European um, human rights legislation that this was a human rights issue and not just a Swedish match, we're arguing a, a commercial issue. It, it was sort of fun to do that, going to the UK High Court and then to the European Court of Justice and trying to understand the procedures and so on. But that was knocked back. And I think it was knocked back because the European, European Court of Justice is mainly dealing with commercial type issues, market type issues. And we should really have taken this to the Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg. And that's maybe something we should do on another occasion. But I, I, I am convinced. I mean, when I worked on drugs harm reduction, as, as I said earlier, I hired people working on human rights. We argued that 
drugs harm reduction was part of the right to health under international conventions. And that argument was accepted in UN agencies eventually, not accepted through court process, but through um, you know, just through some practice and statements and so on. So I sort of taken that argument and applying it here, that you shouldn't deny people a product that might help them avoid an early death. It would seem a perfectly sensible thing to do. My understanding was the British government was not very supportive of your move, despite the fact that Public Health England is is quite supportive of harm reduction. Yes, I think they were mainly arguing a technical legal point, which comes down to an issue that legislators can make legislation. There's a proportionality argument. They argued that the legislation was proportionate to the issue. They didn't argue it on the kind of the facts and the merits, but more... This is often an argument used in the European Court of Justice, and the Court of Justice generally has to accept it that there's a uh, there's an area within which legislators can make decisions in, in when there's uncertainty. So and that was the principle that the UK government was trying to pursue, rather than the facts of the arguments that we were presenting. But you said earlier on that um, Edwina Curry was rather anti-snus, and yes. now you've got the British government defending an anti-snooze position. But presumably Public Health England would be quite pro-snooze, wouldn't they? They've kept a bit quiet. Before Brexit went through, there was a a Department of Health position paper on smoking. And in that, it had a post-Brexit scenario where it said that it would look carefully at deregulating where there might be public health benefits. So there was that commitment pre-Brexit to look again at the regulation of various products. So it's possible that the government, when it's got a few other things, it's got rather a lot to think about at the moment, it's possible that they may look, might look more favourably on snus, and it may, may be that they also look again at the e-cigarette regulations. But there's so much going on at the moment in health that I don't have much hope for that happening in the short run. Well, I think what we can expect, Jerry, is that... Uh... In fact, I'm slightly surprised we haven't had it already, the claim that uh, vaping causes COVID-19 deaths. Yeah. <laughs> but that will undoubtedly come. <laughs> it, well, it, it has been. There's a lot of social media stuff about that, you know, that vaping and smoking might lead to COVID-19. And it's still early days to work out. We can't even work out whether smoking is related because there's a lot of contradictory evidence about smoking and COVID-19. The... The levels of smoking amongst hospitalised patients in China are lower than you would expect. So why have you got fewer than expected smokers appearing in hospitals? The outcomes seem to be worse. With vaping, there's just no evidence. One small side interesting issue is that propylene glycol, which is used in e-cigarettes, it's one of the four constituents, years ago that was used as an environmental disinfectant in hospitals and military establishments. And it's often been speculated that that might have some protective effect against respiratory infections. But that's that's mere, mere speculation. We just don't know. But where I was going to, Jerry, was uh, the, uh, the anti-vaping lobby jump on pretty much anything. And I want to talk a bit now about the, uh, the E-Valley outbreaks and the... Uh, the, the, the hysteria about vaping in relation to those deaths from vitamin E acetate and vaping THC. So would, would you just tell the audience in your way, tell them about that episode and about your take well, on Well, yes, I mean, I've always forgotten that, but because they're now, thinking, they're now talking about COVID, but yes, it's not so long ago. It was only just um, last year, beginning of this year, that the concern about lung injury 
and deaths related to the use of e-cigarettes. And there was a lot of confusion and misinformation at the time that caused a lot of the media coverage and even some of the government, US government coverage was talking about e-cigarettes. And of course, it eventually turned out that it was people who were vaping cannabis products, which had mixed into them vitamin E acetate. Now, to equate vaping of THC with vaping of nicotine is rather confusing delivery systems with what's being delivered. It's rather like saying, if you've got a glass, you could drink water out of it, or you could drink whiskey out of it. So vaping THC products, different devices, they are similar, but they're different devices to e-cigarettes, and you can't vape THC in an e-cigarette. So using the word e-cigarette or vaping conflated an issue here. They should have been alert to the fact that it wasn't vaping of nicotine that was the issue because the first cases were clusters in the US and it, you know there's something going on. It wasn't across the US and the outbreak was entirely confined to the US. There haven't been any such deaths reported in other countries. So the FDA should have been and the CDC should have been alert that there was something odd going on. And eventually they discovered that most of the people who had lung disease linked to vaping had been vaping THC products. Not all of them, but again, when you're interviewing people clinically and you're asking people whether they've been vaping an illegal substance, and I think it counts for people sometimes denying they'd vaped um, THC. And Sometimes the cases weren't verified by um, you know, tox testing and so on. So this was a false campaign, really, against vaping nicotine e-cigarettes. But it does show you how you can have a sudden panic and people jump on the bandwagon. So a very US-specific incident doesn't happen. The lung injuries and deaths in the US are not attributable to the kind of regulated nicotine vaping products that we have in the UK and in Europe. In fact, as a side, it's an example of an unregulated THC market in the, in the US. Absolutely. That should be the message that if you have an unregulated market and people can sell anything, then you quite likely to sell some people are going to get more toxic yes. and more dangerous compounds. That gets me into this other issue of flavours. You've already touched on, you know, the banning of flavours and the campaign against mm. flavours, but most people probably won't understand why this is relevant and, and might even think it's kind of counterproductive because if flavours help people stop smoking, then why wouldn't you want flavours? So can you just explain to the audience the American hysteria about flavours, please? The American hysteria about flavours comes about because many flavours have flavour descriptors or names which seem to appeal to young people, gummy bear or candy floss or whatever. You know. In fact, these are joke names that the adult vapors kind of quite like. There are some flavorings that there shouldn't be there. Diacetyl shouldn't be there. And um, cinnamon flavors possibly uh, shouldn't be there. But flavors are very important. Firstly, you have to add flavors because without flavors, nicotine doesn't taste as much, doesn't taste very nice. To make a tobacco flavor, vape, you have to add flavorings that make it taste like tobacco. It's mm -hmm. not inherently there. So yeah, when you say yeah. banned flavors, you've banned flavors, there'd be nothing much that people would enjoy. They're important because they help people make the switch and I think they prevent people relapsing to smoking. So flavors give a, a choice of experience. 
And people might use several different flavors over time or during the day. It's rather like if you drink alcohol, you don't just drink one type of alcohol, but they have different choices at different times. They give a wider range of pleasurable experiences. And over time, people don't like the taste of smoking. It's interesting that many, when people first transition to vaping, they might try tobacco flavor, then they experiment with other flavors. And they kind of like those flavors more than the old taste of, of smoke. So it does prevent, I think, prevents relapse to smoking. So flavors are important. Given choice of experience, to me, having a range of experiences that people can enjoy makes vaping pleasurable and it makes stopping smoking pleasurable because what you must remember is that if you're a smoker and you're stigmatized you're feeling bad about it what can i do i go to a doctor i get advice from a doctor i go to a smoking cessation clinic they give me nicotine replacement therapy which is boring and doesn't really work and i feel more miserable because i'm going through all this difficult stage of trying to move from smoking onto uh, a replacement nicotine product. Whereas moving from smoking to vaping is a pretty seamless transition for many. It doesn't work for everybody. Some people don't find the transition easy, but it's an enjoyable transition from one way of using nicotine to another. You don't feel rotten. It's quite amusing. You can buy interesting flavors. You can buy interesting devices. And I, I've talked to vapors who said they never they never intended to quit smoking. You know, they, <laughs> they, they, they tried vaping and they liked it so much as one day they realized they weren't smoking anymore. So the pleasure element is there. And as I sometimes say, you know, there's a whole hobbyist element to this as well. You know, there are vape fests, there are mm. vaping websites and consumer groups and forums and so on. There are no NRT websites. There are no <laughs> NRT fests. You know, people say, have you tried the latest from Johnson & Johnson? You know, so there's a, for some vapors, there's a kind of collectivity of, of spirit, which comes about through the shared experience of finding a new way of getting pleasure from nicotine. And it is interesting, isn't it, how many people move to vaping begin to reduce their nicotine it, it, it's it's completely counter to the fear that that nicotine is addictive because you'd imagine if you were getting a nicer form of nicotine you'd take more but over time proportion of vapors actually end up using less nicotine when the devices were first being developed and evaluated people i think were hoping to replicate the cigarette nicotine hit you know the rapid spike of blood nicotine within a few minutes and the gradual gradual tailing off. Uh, both the level of nicotine, but also the the rapidity of onset, doesn't seem to happen when people move to vaping. That nicotine spike is an artifact of the five minute cigarette. You know, invented in the eighteen eighties, the cigarette. You know, uh -huh. the, the uh. cigarette as a nicotine inhaling device is both a dirty nicotine delivery product, but also encourages those spikes of nicotine that you go through the day up and down a bit like uh -huh. a bit, bit parallel to having heroin through the day you know up and down yes, up and down yes, yes, uh, yes. when people move on to vaping both the blood nicotine levels are not as high as with smoking but they also don't go up and down during the day so much there's more i you could say probably looks a bit more like a methadone yes yeah i can see that of course, you can take it any time you like. You don't have to light them with a cigarette once it's lit. You you to, you've got to get it in you, exactly. otherwise it's gone out, or you haven't. You've and, wasted and you your don't money. want to throw it away, so you want to get uh, the five-minute hit. You don't yes. want to waste it. Whereas with vaping, the evidence is that people will sip rather than on on nicotine, and maybe puff two hundred or three hundred times a day. 
So it's a bit like sipping your coffee rather than taking swallowing straight down a double espresso. Yeah, okay. Yes, exactly. So the people will learn a different relationship to nicotine. And that also raises some of these questions about our understanding of nicotine, supposed addiction or dependence. Because as you said, many people over time reduce the amount of nicotine they're using per day when you might expect it to go in the other direction. So it really does open up some interesting ideas about the understanding of the effects of nicotine and how people are using it. Well, thank you very much, Jerry. That's been a wonderful uh, tour through this really controversial field. And there's a lot of unanswered questions. I, I, I just hope that uh, scientists around the globe are, are going to listen to this and s- put their minds to them rather than to put their energies into, into creating more hysteria against vaping. Mm-hmm. Great pleasure talking to you. Uh, and uh, thanks for sharing. And um, I hope to bump into you again soon once this isolation is all over. But please stay well. And thanks again for joining us in the podcast. Thank you, David. It's been a pleasure.